Hello, everyone. It's G3, and welcome to Green Marbles. This week, I have sitting across the table from me, Jordy Visser. It has been a minute since Jordy has been on the show to talk markets and nothing but markets, but trust me, it's not because he doesn't have an opinion on things. So I'm delighted to have him back to discuss the new regime he's calling for in the wake of recent market and economic data that he is analyzing. We're also going to talk about the carnage in crypto, and boy, oh boy, there has been some carnage. So please, check important disclosures at the end of the episode and join us for this one. All right, we are recording, and it's been a little while since you and I sat down, Jordy, just to get your take on what's going on in the markets. The markets, of course, have been full of eye-popping headlines and numbers and the like. And I'm eager to hear your views on all of this. And I know you do have them. So let's just start with the topic that everybody has focused in on, inflation and the Fed's reaction to it. Last week, you said that the October CPI release confirmed that we are in a new market regime. And of course, earlier today, we got the latest PPI print. Can you talk about why you think that after just two data points? I mean, two data points are certainly meaningful, but they're not necessarily a trend. So what has you so confident that we are in a new regime? Well, before we do that, I think I should define, because it's getting used a lot more. I think I got three emails today saying, are we in a new regime? And just so people hear, at least from my perspective, I always view the market in terms of the way investors are talking and where consensus is built up. So for this year, the regime was higher bond volatility or rates fall, meaning more uncertainty caused by two things. One was higher inflation than we had seen any time in the last 40 years. And secondly, a Fed that was committed after a year of transitory to fighting it. So the market had to adjust and that this whole year got magnified on those two premises. You throw in these fears of recession because the ism peaked and it came down. And most of the conversations I had with people were centered on the Fed's going to keep raising rates until they kill the economy and there's nothing that's going to stop that. That regime to me ended. And it wasn't just because of a CPI release. We've talked on this since June. And there's a variety of factors that I use to look for the old regime ending. So I don't know necessarily, and nobody does, what the new regime will look like. I'm sure we'll get into that in terms of what my thoughts are. But the old regime about just sitting in positions, believing the Fed's going to aggressively raise 75 basis points and inflation data is going to continue to surprise on the upside. Since the Fed funds rate was 1%, the last day it was 1% was on June 14th. June 15th is when they raised 75 basis points. If you look at what the S&P 500 has done through, we're sitting down here on Wednesday, the S&P is up about 8% since the Fed funds rate was 1%. So on them raising 75 basis points continuously, if you shorted the S&P the day before and held it on, you've lost money. I always view regime shifts as being something where when the consensus is focused on this connection, Fed raises rates, it's bad for stocks. That hasn't happened. So that's the first thing is the market is telling me that's not the case. Second thing is the Fed statement when it came out was a shift. So before the CPI, for the Fed to basically come out with what was deemed at the time a dovish statement, meaning, hey, we know there's a lag to interest rates. We're seeing weakness in the economy. 
we're still fighting inflation, but in the near future, we will slow the rate hikes. So regardless of whether that's a pivot or anything, that is very, very different from September when verbally it was more pain to come. Now, Powell did speak afterwards and was more hawkish than the dovish statement, which is fine. And that's what came out. But the Fed has clearly made a shift where they want to see the lagging part. I listened to the whole press conference. And the one thing that was interesting was basically when we got to the point of restrictive and there is no definition of restrictive. But what he said was, we really want the Fed funds rate above year over year CPI. And he was specifically talking about the PCE core. Well, the forecast next year for PCE core and Goldman Sachs just put out a piece on this over the weekend by the end of next year is 2.9%. So if you want to just take him literally at where restrictive is and you look at what's happening in PCE core, if we're going to be at 2.9% by the end of next year, we're going to be below the Fed funds rate sometime in the first part of next year. So regardless of your views, we are in the later innings, if not new innings of a new regime. And I think we're in a new first inning of a new regime. And in the last week, a lot of things have happened in the market that suggests that that new regime is starting. To just play a little devil's advocate here, you are, of course, aware that there are seasonal forces at work now that can help the market. And the market, as you, I believe, commented on the morning meeting, was a coiled spring just waiting to burst higher. So if someone wanted to take the other side of your argument, they could say, well, Jordy, yes, inflation has come down, but it's still high. And the explosion to the upside we've seen in the markets was really sort of a temporary thing by virtue of these seasonal factors and everything else. So what say you to that? All the webinars have shown this for the last four months. The fact of the matter is in the first half of this year, annualized CPI, so just headline CPI, <laughs> was over 10%. We are now four months into the second half of the year. That means July, August, September, October. We have those readings. We are currently on pace for an annualized second half of the year of sub 3%. So we went from 10% for the first half annualized. We're now at 3% for the second half. As far as I'm concerned, to not acknowledge the fact that the probabilities of inflation being the major issue for next year have gone down is just stubborn. There's just no other way to define it because the facts are that in the last four months, not the last month, not the last two months, headline CPI has come down. Core CPI still needed to come down. So now when this number came down, and if you go through PPI core and some other things, it's come down. The reality is I'm not saying that we won't have higher inflation than before because I actually do believe it will settle somewhere higher because of the labor shortage than it did from 2010 to 2020. But people have to realize that we've already moved rates higher than they were. So at some point when you're looking at this restrictive, if we average one and a half to 2% from 2010 to 2020 in core inflation, let's assume this year we do get below three, but then we back up to say we stay at two and a half to three. So we're higher than we were rates are going to be higher than they were during the period. Fed funds rate is much higher than it was from 2010 to 2020. So as far as I'm concerned, people have to just adapt to this and not just continue to follow the trend. Trend following is an easy human being thing to do. They just like to take what's worked and extrapolate it into the future. At some point, the regime shifts. And my confidence level of the regime shifting starts from the stuff we're talking about, which is data. But it really got reinforced last week with the massive unwind we saw in momentum. And that typically happens at a regime shift as well. 
And I know you said you can't predict exactly what that new regime is going to look like, but describe the contours of it. What do you think it's going to look like? I think next year rates are going to stay at higher levels. I think rates vol is going to come down meaningfully. And the reason is because they're not going to have to worry about the Fed doing anything aggressive. And there's two moves that could surprise. One is that the Fed has to start easing because we're going into a recession. The other is that inflation actually goes back higher and they have to tighten more than what's expected. I don't think either of those is the highest probability. So the regime that I'm going with is that there's no recession in the cards for next year, that earnings will continue to be good, not great. Nominal GDP will be slowing fairly meaningfully. So nominal GDP this year is going to be in the eight to nine range. I think we'll see it fall back into the five to six range. If I was going to be surprised, it'll be a little bit on the higher side, but some of that will depend on oil. But money supply for the year, as we've talked about, is basically zero. And after one bounce in bank deposits, which make up the bulk of M2, we saw another decline. And as I talk to investors, there's going to be a lot of money that's going to be going into bonds and into cash. And so I think we're going to have a scenario for next year where things are going to moderate more than what people think. And that's just going to mean that the market actually starts to go higher and continuously for next year. Not in a meaningful way, but I think we're going to have a much, much lower volatility environment than we've seen the last three years. You have talked a lot about the amount of cash waiting to come in from the sidelines and the potential relevering of hedge funds. Can you take us through what kinds of assets specifically will benefit the most from these increased flows that you anticipate coming down the pike? Well, if we don't have a recession and we see rates fall come down, all the spread products and fixed income are going to benefit tremendously. Define spread products. So any kind of mortgages, anything that's a higher yield than what's offered in the treasury market, high yield, investment grade. And again, I'm assuming rates fall comes down and there's no recession next year. And if that's the case, these things are way, way, way too wide. You're getting too much of an opportunity here. And because of the demographics and the pension needs, you're going to have money moving into cash. Because I think for the first time in, what are we talking, 20 years, you're able to get, at some point, banks aren't doing it yet, but at some point you'll be able to get four or 5% on putting money in the bank. So I think the first thing is going to be the spread related products. For the equity markets, I think it's outside of the US. And the reason is because I don't think tech is going to thrive in this environment. The second thing about the cash that people have to realize when I say a lot of it's going to go into fixed income, I'm hearing a lot about money that's trapped in the private side in terms of equities with cash calls on this. A lot of this is tech for US and tech for China. It's crypto. A lot of that money is committed. And I am hearing from some places that overinvested in the private market because of the lure of, you know, no mark to market risk that they're going to be in fixed income and privates because that's, they don't have a lot of cash to move into equities and they're assuming that their private equity will give them something. So I'm just under the impression that the best place for people to move into from a safety perspective of a risk adjusted return is going to be the investment grade market and the high yield market and most spread products. Let's talk about energy. You talk about it a lot. It gets covered in the morning meeting quite often. If the U.S. does avoid a recession as you're anticipating and you combine that with the fact that China and Europe are potentially going to reemerge from recession next year. To me, that would seem like it would be supportive of rising demand leading to higher prices. Because if you have rising demand, 
no recession in the U.S. and little desire of energy companies to increase production, that suggests to me that the demand for essentially not too much more oil than we have today is going to go up. Tell me if I'm right. Well, the first thing is, I don't think we're getting any kind of a meaningful bounce in GDP. I just said in the U.S., I'm seeing nominal GDP coming down. And you're talking about if it moves from, let's say, eight to nine and it moves down to five to six, that's a large drop. And demand for oil is has always been said to me that it's just nominal GDP. So if nominal GDP in the U.S. is coming down... And I don't see a large bounce in Europe or in Asia in nominal GDP. China's not going to have a meaningful bounce. We've already talked about the fact COVID is going to extend. The housing market is a major issue over there, and I don't see any kind of a massive rebuild. So I think China's GDP from a nominal basis is going to remain on the lower side, at least for the first half of the year. Maybe they can get some acceleration in the second half. But without China and the U.S. nominal GDP growing, I just don't see a meaningful uptick. The other thing I think people in oil should be worried about <laughs> is that everyone says the same thing. When I hear stories repeatedly about, we've got an energy shortage. Okay, then why isn't it going higher? Oh, it was the SPR release. Okay, so then I heard by the end of October, right ahead of the election, the SPR release will be done and then oil will go higher. It's not happening. Dollar weakened significantly in the last four days. Oil didn't go up. So I get a little worried in price action when the charts look bad. An oil chart doesn't look great. And at the same point, it's not going anywhere. So I always get worried that we're missing something like maybe Russia, Ukraine is coming to some kind of a ceasefire and there's going to be a breakdown in oil. I don't want to guess on these things. I just want to say that oil doesn't look chart wise like it's going higher. I will say this, my belief, and we talked about this at the beginning of the year and then I adjusted it. I believe that oil at the end of this year was going to be around 150 because nominal GDP would be good. I didn't expect the Fed to get as aggressive. So the Fed is hurting nominal GDP and Russia invaded Ukraine. It forced Europe to kill demand for energy to make it through the winter and to speed up their trying to get off fossil fuels even faster than they were. And that led me to believe that, okay, maybe oil is not going to go up to where I thought, which was 150. It hasn't gone up there. And now we're sitting down here in the 80 to 90 area, which is a lot lower than I thought it would be based on everything that I had read at the beginning of the year. So I'm starting to believe that energy will still stay above 80 over next year. And maybe it's in the 80 to 90 area. And that's why the stocks have done so well while the price of oil hasn't really gone higher. And I think that's great for oil stocks. I think it's great for people that are focused on them because if you have a situation where oil stays at 80 to 90, it's kind of the sweet spot. We don't have to deal with it falling off a cliff and it doesn't hurt inflation if it stays between 80 and 100 next year. Okay. All right. So sounds like to me, you are more bullish on spread products and the world X US China in terms of the equity side. If your broader market call is wrong, what likely happens that led to you saying to me six months from now, G3, I was wrong. It didn't work out. I would be worried that a recession would be the answer. But I want to say, if that's the case, there's a bunch of factors that are going to start to show up ahead of time. And right now, the labor market, as I've said repeatedly, I don't even put a small chance of a recession next year because I just can't see anything in the labor data that suggests that we're going to lose a few million jobs next year. Top line revenue has to go negative. 
And year over year top line revenue for companies in this country is 11.5%. So every single time I hear a person tell me that there's a recession coming and that the jobs market's weakening because they're reading that Amazon is laying off 11,000 people and blah, 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 blah. Top line revenue is growing 11.5% through the last quarter. It, that has to change and that needs to go negative and people need to go look at what happens to top line revenue. And I think PPI dropping will go faster than CPI. And if that's the case, companies are stubbornly going to still make more money than what people expect. And so if you have a scenario that inflation comes down, rates fall comes down, then all of those things we talked about G3 in December, where if rates fall went higher, equity risk premium would rise you're going to start to see some multiple expansion because if rates fall comes back down, then the multiple on the S&P is going to change a little bit and you're going to start to see investment grade yields come down. You're going to see mortgage yields come down. And all of a sudden you're going to have a little boost in the ISM because part of why that stuff was down was because of rates fall and those spread products are much wider than they should be. So finish the comment. So then what happens? What happens to what? <laughs> what happens instead? <laughs> So what happens instead? So your view mm -hmm. that big tech would not have a good period, that energy would remain pretty much range bound, that companies with pricing power would do very well. All of the things that you thought would happen don't happen. What happens in its place? If a recession comes in, then stocks are going to start to head back lower. This will have been a bear market rally and it'll be driven by the fact that earnings have declined. If earnings stay the same, and the Fed starts easing, then I still think markets are going to be fine for next year. They'll just be in this slowdown phase. So the bigger risk here is that a recession happens and that earnings drop off a cliff. Got it. Okay. Thank you very much for that. Let's end on one of our favorite topics, blockchain and crypto. In addition to talking a lot about increasing health span and all sorts of new innovations coming down the pike. Crypto, of course, is an enduring theme. The borderless internet is an enduring theme. Does the situation with FTX, which right now has the whole world of crypto in a world of hurt, does that in any way affect your thesis on crypto? No, not the, as you call it, the thesis in crypto. Does it change my view on 30-year-olds uh, running things? <laughs> <laughs> I never believed in that concept anyway. You have to separate always with any kind of new innovation, whether it's the beginning of the internet, whether it's you're going to get cancer if you hold a cell phone. We're still in the early stages, believe it or not, of this. And as I've talked about, even with the fall we saw in FTX and Bitcoin going back down to below 20,000, Nothing changes the power of the blockchain, in my opinion. Will it slow things down? Yeah, I guess. I guess investors are not going to be going into anything the way they were. But I do want to make sure everyone listening hears this, because you and I talked about this, and I have a very, very unique view on this, and I have said it to VCs. I've said it to people in the industry. I've said it to the diehard crypto people. I just don't think giving money to individual quote unquote companies and trying to use the fiat system of companies for the crypto world will ever work. And I think this is just another example of you just can't do it. I think you have to be involved in the major tokens. That's where your investment should be for both liquidity reasons, but also because I think this is going to happen more and more. And I would not be surprised if FTX takes down other companies that maybe had investments in it and they lose people and your investments. And I'm not going to get into any of the other ones 
because I think there's a lot of them out there that are related to it. But if you have a gaming company, I think it'll be popular for a little while and then it'll move on to another gaming company. But the explosion in these things is going to be just dramatic. And this is very similar to the things I say about for longevity and health span. I love the biotech industry. I think healthcare and investments in there will be one of the dominant innovation factors in terms of this. I have no idea which companies, and all you have to do is go look at what happened to Moderna. Basically, their stock booms, and I forget the market cap, let's say it went from $4 billion just before COVID to, I don't know, $100 billion, whatever the case is, and then it falls back down to, say, 30 to 40 I think you're going to see that a lot in the tokens, and I think you have. I think my son gave me that kind of heads up when his... He was telling me what his portfolio was worth. And then it went down over the course of like two weeks and gave back 70% of it. I just think this is part of the crypto world. If you make singular investments into companies and into 30-year-olds, you have to expect that those things are going to unwind. This is not a world of moats. And that was something I know we talked about. So if you say the borderless internet, which I believe in, you have to think in terms of there's no moats, which means they can go up a lot and they will eventually go down. So when they go up, during the pump, as my son says, you have to dump early and go move back to Bitcoin. And I think that's the way that people are going to learn from this. So I actually treat this as a very healthy thing for that environment and more for investors to kind of focus on the established part of it and investing more in the innovation and not in the companies. So bet on the networks, not on the companies building on top. Absolutely. All right. On that note, thank you so much as always. Appreciate you bucking everybody up when it comes to Bitcoin and Ethereum. It's been painful, but I think you make a lot of sense there as well as everything else. So really appreciate it, Jordy. Thanks, G3. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. Information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investment. Any health-related information shared on this podcast is not intended as medical advice or for use in self-diagnosis or treatment. Please consult a qualified healthcare professional before acting upon any health-related information on this podcast. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.